welcome to the Guelph Politicast. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico. Today I talked to Gil Stelter, a professor emeritus from the History Department at the University of Guelph. Like me, Stelter specializes in Guelph, but whereas Guelph Politico focuses on the present, Stelter focuses on Guelph's past, or rather its beginnings, to be more precise. Fitting this week, then, that we should consult Stelter about the man in whose honor the August long weekend holiday is named, John Galt. Galt's name is on the proverbial patent for Guelph, and his influence is everywhere. Downtown still has the outline he laid out almost 200 years ago. His visage stands between old and new city halls. There's a school named after him in the East End, and now there's a whole episode of this podcast dedicated to him. John Galt is the topic of this week's Guelph Politicast. Let's start with a quote. John Galt, novelist, colonial promoter, born 2 May 1779 in Irvine, Scotland, died 11 April 1839 in Greenock, Scotland. Galt was superintendent 1826-29 of the Canada Company, a colonization company created to settle part of Upper Canada, parentheses, Ontario. During that time, he founded the town of Guelph, 1827. The town of Galt, now part of Cambridge, was named after him. That's the opening entry about Galt in the Canadian Encyclopedia. But it doesn't tell you a lot about who he really was or what he thought as he went about the task of settling the area that we now call Guelph. You may walk the streets he laid out, walk past his park on Woolwich Street, or live in the part of Cambridge that bears his name, but can any of us say that we know John Galt's story, really? On top of that, there have been a lot of assumptions about who Galt was, and whether or not he was a success in his efforts to lead the Canada Company. The popular wisdom for years was that he was a failure, yet the city he created survives and thrives, almost as he originally intended, as an agricultural hub that could produce food and cultivate innovation beyond just the immediate area. But what about Galt as a colonizer? For the last few years, we've been reconsidering the people and stories that make up the history of Canada, and we've been asking ourselves how we balance any civic pride for the modern institution, which are built on the lands that were schemed, stolen, and taken from the indigenous people that lived here. Stelter, as an expert on all things Galt, has been thinking about these things too, and you may be surprised to learn that John Galt, ever the iconoclast, had some unusual ideas about how settlers and indigenous people should get along as equals. And that's where we pick things up on this edition of the Guelph Politicast. Stelter will give us a breakdown on who John Galt was, his notoriety beyond the borders of Guelph, and how he managed to balance his career as a writer with his role as a prominent business person. We will also talk about Galt's written works and what they tell us about his thinking, how his relationship with John Brandt informed his thinking when it came time to settle Guelph, and how the mythology of Galt as a business failure was built. And finally, we will talk about Stelter's interest in John Galt as a lifelong area of study, what Galt might think of Guelph now nearly 200 years later, and how John Galt might have felt right at home amongst the celebrity businessmen of the year 2023. So I caught up with Gil Stelter last week via Zoom. Okay, so Gil Stelter, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm glad to be here. 
Uh, why don't we start with the big question? Who was John Galt? <laughs> In the well, broad strokes. <laughs> John Galt uh, is a very unlikely person to have founded a city. Mm -hmm. in some ways in other ways he prepared for that kind of thing for all of his life but the actual Canada company business uh and so on uh when he engaged in that it was for a totally different purpose he was a, a uh he from his youth was determined to be both to have a dual career to be both a business person and a literary person uh and uh he knew other people uh, of his age, uh, including Walter Scott, uh, Wolfgang Goethe, people of that sort, who did that very successfully because they then were more realistic in their uh, literature, and he wanted to take a not a romantic but a realistic view of society in his literature. And so uh, he was a businessman, but the funny thing is that both the British commentators to this day and particularly the Canadian commentators and historians, I always picture him as a failed uh, businessman. Right. Uh, he was occasionally in an age in which international trade was such a risky business, uh, and he engaged in it. He loved the absolute riskiness of it. He was a, he, he was a kind of guy who liked to take risks. Uh, and had traveled in the Mediterranean as a young man and uh, went into a war zone uh, uh, and uh, really distinguished himself by being, uh, well, whether foolhardy or courageous, it's hard to say, but he's a combination of both. Uh, and so he did fail in some business ventures, very successful in others. And he uh, made a reputation for himself uh, in uh, the uh, 1820, early 1820s uh, as a great lobbyist at Parliament for a canal company in Scotland. Mm. And the people, uh, some rich Scottish, Scottish origin businessmen in the Niagara region and knew about him and, and had read his books, but they also knew that he was a great lobbyist. And so they offered him a job as... A, a lobbyist to convince the imperial government to uh, give reparations to the people who had lost property during the War of 1812. Mm. The Americans had invaded Canada, and a lot of these Scots had lost property, so they wanted a government compensation for this. And so Galt took on that particular job. Now, it was while he was doing this job that some of the Scottish leaders, a guy by the name of Thomas Clark, uh, who built a, a fabulous mansion in Niagara Falls uh, and had married the granddaughter of Molly Brandt, a famous mm. Indian uh, Mohawk. Uh, and uh, Clark suggested that uh, the Mohawks in uh, by then established along the Grand River, they'd been given the Haldeman Tract, six miles on each side of the uh, Grand River, uh, as their refuge when they had to leave the U.S. They were the Mohawks, or the, the Six Nations, led by the Mohawks, right. uh, had supported the British. When the British lost the American Revolutionary War, they became refugees, and they were welcomed into Canada along uh, these lines. But then 
the question of whether they actually owned the land or not that they were given uh, came up and was a legal issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, they sent uh, the son of the former uh, Six Nations leader, Joseph Brandt, uh, his name was uh, John Brandt. They sent him to London in 1822 to lobby Parliament, but they told him, make sure when you're in London that you contact John Galt and he'll give you help. So they must have known that Galt had already established their reputation as being sympathetic to the Indigenous cause in North America. He'd written mm-hmm. a play that was very pro-Indigenous, uh, he made other comments about the brutal nature of imperialism and so on. So this uh, supposedly anti-imperialistic guy uh, uh, gets involved in the whole thing. He helps young John Brandt by writing a brief to the colonial office. 1825, he does it again uh, when he uh, gets has got involved in the Canada Company. But he created the Canada Company without any capital himself, right. he got financiers to create this company because it looked like a good deal to buy land in Upper Canada and sell it. And the purpose of this Canada company was to give the Upper Canadian, uh, the Canadian government the cash that they could then pay reparations to the Scottish guys. Uh, and so that was the basis of the Canada company. Uh, and uh, eventually, the colonial secretary said, no, I'm not going through with this deal. Uh, whatever money they ra- the Canada company raises goes to uh, the government of, of Upper Canada and not to these uh, these claimants of the War of 1812. So Galt was in a, a bad situation in this regard. But uh, he was a successful businessman, a lot more so than the... Uh, the uh, many times he referred to uh, in in uh, Canadian history, and and the people who referred to him partially correctly as a hack writer, <laughs> uh, he wrote six or seven novels that were as good as anything ever written in Britain in the nineteenth century, and uh, and still are very readable. But to make a living in between business jobs. He did a he did a lot of writing just for the immediate need of, of money. Right. And some of these are pretty awful. And then he did some just clearly hack writing, uh, rewriting other people's history books, changing a few things, uh, and uh, just to enliven them. And everybody knew this was just a hack job, but he put his name on them, uh, and so he had a reputation that was mixed in both business and in literature. You're describing someone who I think would very much feel at home in this era as someone who was like known for his business, but also known for his, his side project, his art, you know, known for taking on business opportunities that maybe he doesn't, he wasn't prepared for. He didn't have experience in, but giving it a whirl anyway, somebody who was also politically savvy because he, was a, a successful lobbyist as well. Yeah, and had good friends. Uh, the prime ministers at the time, right? The colonization, first Canning and Goderich, were both very fans of his and of and of his books and read his books and uh, liked them. But the colonial secretary, 
was an old-fashioned aristocrat who <laughs> didn't read books uh, and uh, uh, was actually against commercial operations. Uh, he, he felt this whole thing was kind of a money-grabbing thing, which it was uh, on the part of the company, but not of Galt. Uh, and uh, uh, so I have to distinguish uh, between uh, in, in assessing who is the good guy and who is the villain in some of these issues, uh, have to distinguish uh, between uh, people who have good intentions but uh, are caught in a situation in which uh, having to have to be employed or to make money uh, becomes very important. Mm-hmm. In terms of you know from your experiences. And I want to get into how you got into the 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 history of John Galt in a sec, but um, when you're talking about his sort of reasons or or some of the ideas he had about how he wanted to use the Canadian company, we don't really get into that much when we're talking, even just talking about our local history. You know his his desire to you know treat oddly enough, 200 years before his time, you know, create this kind of nation to nation relationship with the the local indigenous people. I'm wondering, is that because of like, is that accidental or is that purposeful that, you know, we've kind of erased that kind of humanitarian aspect of Galt that it's just, it just, we just sort of talk about the matter of business when it comes to the creation of Guelph and the Canada company. There was a very important PhD dissertation written at Cambridge university by a Canadian. Mm. And uh, it uh, it really puts down gold as a businessman, makes fun of him, and uh, says, you know, he, he was a writer, not a businessman. Mm. Uh, and uh, uh, this, I, I've had to fight with this interpretation <laughs> since I've really got involved in this gold thing. And uh, I, I've gone through the mountain of material available at the Ontario Archives. Uh, an absolute mountain of material of correspondence involving the formation of the company and, and so on, plus all the Galt material that's available in Ottawa, plus all of the stuff that's available in Britain. And I've spent a lot of time in Edinburgh and in London at the record offices going through this. So I've gone through all the unpublished correspondence as well as the incredible number of books, I mean, 30 or 40 books, uh, and uh, most of them uh, fiction, uh, but they often tell me a great deal about Galton. The thing I really enjoy about him, and now that I really know what he did in in reality, uh, I can read a book and see references he's making to himself Mm. without uh, somebody Somebody who's only in literature won't get it. Mm-hmm. But I, because I've done the history behind it, I begin to realize, yeah, he's just making fun of himself, actually, uh, in describing a particular character. Uh, and uh, I find that he was very private in his telling people about his marriage, uh, his family life, and so on, uh, and, and very much a Puritan at heart. Uh, but... He let himself go in creating characters that sometimes were based on himself and his wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one in particular, a book by the name of Boggle Corbett that he wrote after he was in Canada, actually tells us more about golf than it does about anything else. So uh, I've, I've been at this uh, to, 
to finish this long biography for, oh, I don't know, seven or eight years, but I've been, and I've got a 900 page manuscript. I have to cut down to about 450 <laughs> pages. Uh, but uh, I've had health problems, which have really held me back. And I can't help being interested in everything else. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, go easily distracted. And uh, another cause comes up and people ask me to get involved. I do when I should be sticking to finishing this damn manuscript. <laughs> people keep, yeah. Uh, I feel, now I feel partially responsible for holding up the manuscript. But uh, moving on, um, it, it seems to me that given what you just described, our understanding of John Galt is formed from, I mean, the, you talked about this one sort of dissertation that, I guess it sounds like essentially threw him under the bus, uh, historically well, wise speaking. I could take one example. Yeah. Uh, one example of many. There, there are a whole bunch of Canadian historians who have really supported the family compact in Toronto. Mm. Uh, and uh, a good friend of mine, Fred Armstrong at Western, was one of these guys who made uh, any opposition to the family compact a bad thing. Well, Galt was anti-Anglican. Mm -hmm. uh, he was anti-military, and the governor was uh, a general. Uh, he uh, uh, was uh, pro-indigenous uh, uh, when they were trying to actually assimilate and uh, eventually probably wipe out the indigenous. So mm -hmm. for all of these reasons, uh, he, uh, he gets a lot of bad press from historians in Canada. And I think now having gone through all the records, it's really totally unjustified. Right. Uh, I mean, he's he's on the right side of history as far as I'm concerned. And right. the compact is a group of dinosaurs that eventually get overthrown <laughs> as well uh, by the 1830s and 1840s after Galt leaves. I guess what what I'm tr what I was getting at though is that a lot of people form helped form opinions about who John Galt was. He presented a lot as as you were saying he presented a lot about himself through his fiction through through his his literary works um and it seems to me that 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 has sort of made your job a bit harder trying to get to the bottom you have to deal with sort of the the truth of the matter through things like well, the canada company but you also have to be a, a sort of literary scholar too i uh i i discovered that his autobiography, which is very good read, uh, outlines all of his failures as well as his successes. And so people who are uh, conservatively oriented uh, can take this and justifiably mention all kinds of things which he was impetuous. Uh, he didn't give a proper deference uh, to the local power structure in, in Toronto and so on. Uh, and uh, they can make him look bad just by quoting him, uh, <laughs> and showing uh, his failures, uh, but they ignore the other side of it and the uh, difficulties he was faced. Because I, I think he is one of the real urban pioneers, uh, urbanists, I should say, in understanding the, uh, the nature of cities, uh, understanding the nature of communities that uh, life in a village and in a town, and in a city, and in a metropolis, are quite different. And Galt's fiction, in particular, really describes this brilliantly uh, when you go through his various books. And then in his travels, he always 
wrote about the cities he was visiting, like Istanbul, which was then Constantinople, mm. or Paris, or other places that he went to. And then he always compared these two, the British cities, uh, how they were better or worse than the British cities. So uh, he had a good understanding of how imperial, how uh, empires expanded, the Roman Empire in particular, but also the Greeks, uh, and that they planted towns ahead of settlement. Uh, in other words, towns didn't grow up because there were already more settlers there needing a town. The town comes first. And so he knew that this worked in the past, and that's why he wanted to plant a town before there was a single farmer on the land they bought. Uh, and that was the, the theoretical basis of his whole operation here in Canada. And mm -hmm. so people made fun of it, including uh, people like Adam Ferguson, who, who founded Fergus a little later, because he was one of the old rural types who believed you had to have a good rural base first before you could create a, a village or a town. Mm -hmm. It makes me wonder, though, he, he's someone who's highly critical of the system he's, he's partaking in. Um, but at the same time, he, he was enjoying success. People did listen to him. People gave him support. I, I guess, how how did he manage those two things? Oh, that... He was very successful in Parliament. At Parliament, in fact, I discovered what, one of the things I did with what you could now do with the British archives they have they have this wonderful uh, newspaper archive which you can search now digitally, uh, and what I'm able to, what I've been able to do is to go through all of Galt's events and he's he's often mentioned in the British press, uh, and I've discovered among other things and then the parliamentary records themselves that in some cases he mentioned a failure of his that actually was a success. But 30 years later, writing about it, he he remembered it as a failure. Uh, and uh, uh, so I've been going through and uh, wondering, how did this guy, the son of a sea captain uh, in a little Scottish town on the coast of Ayrshire, uh, how did he get to the top in dealing with prime ministers and uh, the colonial secretary and people of that sort. Well, he had this ability to charm people when he really turned on the charm. Uh, and uh, the, those who read his books, his good books, were very, very fond of him. And he had a lot of good friends who supported him. But he had also a lot of enemies uh, who, uh, 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 particularly those who were uh, Anglican and believed that the Anglican church uh, should be uh, given special uh, position, which it had in England, it mm -hmm. was the established church. Uh, and the, the Canadian officials tried to do that in Canada to make it the uh, established church. But he had a Presbyterian background. He wasn't religious himself, but he had a Presbyterian background, which was a more democratic approach to religion, uh, dividing the church and the state. And so he, uh, his anti-Anglicanism really uh, hurt him with the uh, the officials in in York, uh, but it might have also um, made him appealing to uh, indigenous people here, people like John Brandt. That he, you know, he's kind of got this rebellious streak against some of the key tenants. Well, and, he uh, is, uh, but but uh, young John Brandt, like his father, had converted to Anglicanism. Right. Uh, and, uh, 
and trans both of them translated uh, parts of the Bible into Mohawk and so on. But uh, Brandt really uh, uh, believed, as did Galt, that uh, the indigenous and uh, European stock could live side by side and uh, benefit from the close association. Now, uh, Galt himself didn't push the idea of Christianity uh, mm. the way Brandt did, because uh, uh, and and this this Christianity came in via the schools, right. uh, and uh, and and Brandt was very very uh, as as the young chief uh, was very uh, understanding that uh, for for the indigenous to survive in a modern economy surrounding them that they had to learn about this economy and so he created a mechanics institute which uh, later became a no uh, the mechanics institutes became normal throughout uh, uh, the west as well uh, throughout white society but uh, he created this because he felt that the young men and then he included uh, the young women as well later needed to learn trades and so on in order to adapt to the North American situation that hunting hunting and trapping no longer would work that but the brands and John in particular uh, became very pro agriculture learning modern agriculture and the the Iroquoian background of course they're farmers right uh, they were really weren't that much into hunting anymore when they moved to Canada uh, the brands were for this, but there were people within the reserve, the Six Nations Reserve, who were, as they called themselves, the longhouse people. They no longer built the longhouses. They hadn't. They hadn't built those for years in New York State. Uh, they built log cabins, mm -hmm. and so when they came to uh, build uh, their villages, their village here in the Six Nations, they built log houses, not longhouses. Uh, and so they had given up that part of their tradition. But uh, the Brants, father and son, believed that you could live in both worlds and be a hybrid uh, at mm. the same time. And Galt really supported that idea uh, and uh, and traveled with Brandt. Uh, and, uh, uh, for example, in the fall fair uh, in uh, the first year of Galt of Guelph's creation, uh, they had a big fair on, in August uh, of uh, uh, people from all over the area. And uh, Galt created the, the Upper Canada Agricultural Society. Mm -hmm. and he was the president. Two directors were uh, William Dixon, who had founded the town of Cambridge. Uh, well, and then it was called Galt in Galt's honor, uh, which became Cambridge. Uh, and uh, George Hamilton, who had founded the town of Hamilton in 1815. They, they were the two directors of this agriculture society. But the secretary treasurer and the guy who ran it on a daily basis was John Brandt. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, there's a, uh, a man now uh, in the Six uh, living in the Six Nations who runs a big farm. Uh, his name is Barry Hill, uh, a retired engineer. Uh, he has a 2,000-acre farm uh, in the Six Nations, uh, is in the Ontario Agricultural Hall of Fame, has been given honorary degrees by both McMaster and Guelph, 
for his uh, promotion of advanced techniques in agriculture. So Berry Hill is the modern version of what John Brandt was trying to do. Right. But the local people know very little about Brandt because uh, he died of cholera in 1832. Right. Uh, when uh, uh, he had just been named chief, actually just a little, little while earlier. And Gaunt, of course, was fired in 1829, so he wasn't here anymore. So that dream of uh, really working together uh, fell apart, uh, and uh, officials, particularly the Indian Department, uh, the, the way in which the, the land of Six Nations was sold was an absolute travesty. And uh, 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 really, the, the Six Nations today are still uh, terribly upset about it and still mm-hmm. making legal uh, efforts to regain some of this, uh, uh, legitimately so. When you look at the record, they yeah. are right. It's funny to talk about the, the creation of this agricultural society um, spanning Guelph, Hamilton, Brandt. It reminds me a bit of how we're, we're 200 years later, we're developing these innovation corridors along the 401 and Highway 6. It's, yeah. you know, what's old is new again still. Yeah, well, I mean, the, I mean, Galt, Galt really promoted uh, the notion of importing uh, high level stock. Uh, and cattle and pigs into Upper Canada, uh, he uh, felt that the uh, the Mennonites next door uh, in Kitchener-Waterloo, uh, that they were doing subsistence agriculture, not for commercial purposes, but just to live. Right. Uh, and he felt that uh, for this to be a modern society here in Guelph, uh, Guelph should become a center of the promotion of modern agriculture. And so Galt would be very, very pleased to now if he saw how Guelph has, in fact, had a tradition of being in the forefront of uh, a major, uh, of major, uh, yeah. of agri- egg business. What we call, what we now call egg business. Yeah, yeah. I was wondering about that and listening to your talk and and some of these ideas he had that just that. He would, I mean, granted, he, we'd have to explain things like cars and stuff to him first. But, you know, the his vision very much came to be, even though he was back in England after two years. We we are an agricultural center, and that's been true yeah. going back 100 years to when they set up sure. the Royal Winter Fair and the Ontario Agricultural College. Well, the Winter Fair becomes really... Uh, and it grows out out of the college uh, to a certain extent, uh, and uh, uh, is perfectly in the direction that John Galt uh, felt that uh, agriculture should go. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in that sense, uh, he was greatly uh, a great deal more successful. Uh, and when people say, "Oh, yeah, well, he was fired after two years," when you realize how he was fired or why he was fired, uh, you realize that the company. Uh, increasingly uh, was split in London between those who wanted to uh, create a good uh, colonization project here and raise it above the average and those who simply want to make money quickly. And Galt kept saying, this kind of project takes a long time to to run a profit. Uh, And so, for example, they were upset that uh, 
when he sold town lots to begin with, he allocated that half of the cost, half of the price of every town lot would be going to education to build a school right away. Now, a lot of people from Britain came to Guelph when they heard about this. They felt this was the kind of society they could go with. Now, a lot of other frontier towns in, on the American West and Canadian uh, frontier uh, were really primitive places for a long, long time. Well, in Galt, in, in, in Guelph, Galt started things up. Uh, he was on the verge of creating a printing press and he wanted to have a newspaper, uh, all of this stuff you know, instantly create civilization here uh, and not go through a long, long primitive period. Uh, and so uh, while he himself wasn't uh, a, a performing or an observing uh, Christian, he believed that churches were necessary to civilize a place quickly. So he gave money quickly to uh, Bishop MacDonnell, who had become a friend of his mm -hmm. uh, because of how he was involved in the creation of the Canada Company. Uh, and he gave uh, land also to the Presbyterians uh, and uh, the Methodists. So uh, that was with the idea of bringing civilization and education and, and so on into this uh, thing. So uh, I'm, I'm uh, very fond. I'm, I can see Galt's faults. He was incredibly impetuous. He, he made decisions uh, instantly, and sometimes they were wrong decisions. And uh, he uh, also put off people by being undiplomatic uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, said what he thought rather than uh, being uh, careful about how he expressed himself. But, but, but again, that would be kind of a plus today is that he would be, you know, on Twitter, you know, he'd be the one like stirring the pot on Twitter, right? He'd be the, you know, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Trying to trying to shock the the normies and, and all that, it you know, and all of this, too, you know, when you're talking about the Canada Company, I mean, that's not an unusual thing in this modern era where somebody comes along, they have an idea. It might take a while to come to fruition, but the money people want their money. And, yeah. you know, sometimes it's just a matter of, you know, luck or will or fate or whatever, you know, which side ones out. just in this instance, the, the money guys kind of won out and John Galt had to go home. Well, that, that's right. The, the whole corporate thing is, is uh, an interesting uh, thing. Uh, I'm also playing with the idea of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, mm -hmm. uh, uh, in which uh, uh, Dr. Frankenstein creates the monster, and then the monster grows out of his control. Well, in effect, the Canada Company is the monster in this case. Uh, Galt starts it, but he's not... A member of the company in the sense that he had done have an investment in it because he didn't have that kind of money. Mm -hmm. The financiers did. And ultimately, it's the financiers who, who call the shots. Right. And, uh, and so they, they move away from things. But ironically, uh, after they fired Galt uh, and uh, uh, he went back to, to London, uh, Galt, uh, Guelph just sits here and nothing happens because they're not contending to invest in infrastructure and bring, building up the community. And about after five years, they realized they have to change their point of view. So they publish advertisements saying, uh, we're going to return to you. Not, they do it very carefully. We're not going to return to the old ways of Galt. They don't say that, but that's what they're doing. Right. In order to get 
you're on track uh, operational, which most most which happens after God goes, uh, they're following God's uh, approach by starting little communities, uh, which all the way to God, which is a whole series of communities, which Dunlop, his assistant, and he laid out uh, and uh, really set the stage for Western Ontario's character. And again, I don't want to drop names, but I mean, it's happened in the recent past that there's a company which gets rid of the founder and then stagnates for years and then has to bring back the founder, or in this case, the founder's ideals in order to, in order to revamp. I was wondering if you could t- talk a bit about the, this play he wrote, John Gall wrote called The Apostate, which is for, and I, I was watching the video of, of your talk to the historical society. And, and I, I found this idea fascinating that he's, he wrote this, what, essentially sounds like an allegory about his his feelings about colonialism and imperialism uh-huh. and he's using the advantage the, the uh, example of atlantis to to describe that but go ahead yeah, that's right this is 1814 uh, he's just back from the mediterranean trip which was a very very successful trip and he had really worked out a way of getting around napoleon uh, <laughs> and napoleon had the unfortunate thing of being defeated so they, they, he no longer needed to use his uh, methods there, but he came back to London and uh, des- uh, decided he had to make a living writing. So he was the, he became the editor of a series of uh, producing plays, uh, publishing plays, uh, and uh, the apostate was one of these. And so he he admitted uh, in his editorial he, he wrote. He wrote the play, and then he also wrote the criticism as though he were somebody else uh, assessing it. And <laughs> this was a com- common thing uh, at the time. In fact, I think it goes on today as well. But uh, uh, he uh, uh, pointed out that uh, the author of this play uh, was using Rousseau's, the great philosopher Rousseau's, ideas about the noble savage. Uh, and uh, and, and Galt uh, decided that he would put his ideas. He, he was a great fan of William Penn and what he did with uh, good relations with the uh, natives in uh, in Pennsylvania. And anyway, so he writes this, and it's a it's a, a, a David Knight's volume in in republishing this thing. Uh, it does a great job because the introduction to it uh, has uh, two experts, including David, uh, going into some of the indigenous background here. Now they. They haven't, uh, because the local indigenous history is in such bad shape in terms of uh, what's been published. Mm. Uh, That's why I'm giving these talks, but I haven't actually written all this stuff down yet. And uh, I I need to do that. But uh, he he was very, very sympathetic to this idea of being close to nature uh, and... uh, uh, he liked these ideas of uh, not uh, having prisons, uh, that you have uh, a, a totally different way of dealing with local uh, problems uh, in your society and so on. So that's why he was quite taken with this. Uh, but in the end, uh, one of the things that I didn't make clear in what I've been saying to uh, to various groups is that Galt did in the back of his head, except the general notion that the indigenous were a dying race. Mm. It was generally accepted uh, 
general general idea among the intellectuals in Europe and and in Canada. Uh, in the end, Galt, after he came after he left Canada, his, he uh, wrote his last his very last thing he wrote was a a long poem in the Knickerbocker magazine published in New York, and he uh, wrote this as an ode to the dying race uh, because he felt that there was no long-term future uh, for the indigenous because they were dying off. And, of course, during his lifetime, uh, particularly in southern Ontario, the Anishinaabe and the uh, Haudenosaunee, the Iroquois, uh, had lost terrific number of people to disease. I mean, the mm -hmm. disease was decimating this, these societies. So he felt, he accepted this idea in the long run, that unless they accepted modern ideas uh, of development uh, and, uh, and education, that they didn't have a future. And uh, uh, he would be surprised to see how so many years later, uh, these societies are making a real comeback, despite all these official uh, attempts over the last 150 years to wipe them out. Mm -hmm. He was writing from the point of view that, I guess what I'm trying to get at, is, was he writing from the point of view of, like, it's inevitable that the, the indigenous people were dying out, or was he warning, writing from the point of view, like, maybe we should help these people and stop? Oh, well, he, he wanted to help them, but he knew from his experience and from his is he was a very widely read guy, and he knew indigenous problems were problems around the world, wherever right. imperialism had hit, and he particularly uh, was interested in places like India and so on. Uh, and, and he could see that uh, things were going badly for the uh, indigenous everywhere. And, uh, anyway, I, I think that people should feel proud uh, of this colonizer. Uh, when you mention the word colonizer now, uh, all kinds of people, progressive people, immediately, you know, write them off. Right. Uh, for that reason. Well, there are colonizers and there are colonizers. Right. Uh, when you compare him to, to a lot of others, uh, he's just in, in a totally different uh, uh, category of, of, of this. And uh, uh, so uh, I think, and, and, uh, the Six Nations people do not give Brandt, the Brants, and particularly John Brandt, any, uh, uh, any, uh, I think, proper uh, recognition. Uh, I, I discussed uh, John with with one of the Six Nations people, who said, "Well, he he uh, sold our land, and then he uh, 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 he started the residential school system." Well, he had. By having a mechanics institute, he had no idea of using that in order to wipe out uh, or assimilate the, the indigenous. Right. He wanted to, to learn a trade. Uh, and so uh, his motivations were entirely different. Uh, and so I, I think it's necessary to start to look at the records and, and get it straight on, on both sides. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not defending the... Uh, the uh, officials in Toronto and and Canada generally, right? Uh, the indigenous because they they really did want to wipe them out eventually. But right. Galt was was while Galt feared that might was that it was happening. He didn't support that idea. Right. It's interesting that 
John Brandt dies in 1832. Um, Galt, I mean, Galt had been home for 10 years, but he dies in 1839. It just, um, they die. And some of these grand ideas that they have in, in some cases get perverted into yeah. something heinous. And, and because they were there at the beginning, they kind of get swept up into um, the implications of what they became. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a, uh... Anyway, going into the actual records uh, and uh, trying to straighten out uh, what Gold actually thought, mm. and why he had difficulties with the company and with the administrations, uh, and uh, got along so well with with Brandt. Uh, they traveled together. I, I just read recently in the Gore Gazette, which was a newspaper published in the 1820s here in Upper Canada, uh, and Brandt uh, uh, sometimes went with Galt and Dunlop to Scottish celebrations in other cities like Hamilton. Uh, and in one case, uh, Galt toasted Brandt by saying uh, that the Six Nations had been such a loyal ally of Britain. Uh, and then uh, in return, Brandt toasted him uh, saying uh, that uh, uh, he was the prestigious author of a book called uh, Wiley, uh, uh, Wiley of that ilk. It's a, it's a novel that's not well known, but it's a novel about a guy who starts off in a small town in Scotland, eventually becomes a major political figure in, in London, uh, and then through integrity and hard work, returns uh, to a big... Uh, purchased the biggest state uh, in rural Scotland and lived like a lord. <laughs> and so uh, uh, Rant liked that story, and uh, and it shows that uh, he not only uh, uh, liked Galt, but spent a lot of time with him. Now, Galt, Galt didn't live in Guelph after he founded the place. Mm-hmm. He had a house in Burlington. And uh, there's a story there. Uh, if you know uh, modern Burlington, there is the Brandt Museum right. uh, in Burlington. Well, uh, in 18, about 1800, uh, Joseph Brandt, this is John's father, uh, became uh, disillusioned about the opposition to his ideas of working together and uh, not, sub- not segregating. Uh, and uh, left his mansion, which was quite a house in in what became Brantford, uh, and built this mansion in Burlington because the British gave him a big chunk of land uh, in that area. And so Galt rented a house quite close to uh, uh, young, Bra- young Brandt, John, uh, lived in the, this house uh, after his father died. And uh, I'm very curious about what I don't know yet. I can't, I'm working on this right now. Uh, John's mother, Catherine, uh, left that house in Burlington when her husband died in 1807, and she moved back to the uh, reserve Mm -hmm. and uh, where she had other children. Mm. Uh, John and their sister, young John and sister, uh, then lived in Burlington, uh, and uh, he alternately well, he was in. He became the Indian superintendent, mm. which was 
a government job, and it's and then and then he uh, became the actual chief. But uh, uh, John uh, uh, was uh, a fairly educated young guy, and I'm impressed. I've been going through all of his letters, uh, and uh, he uh, would well. One case I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get a hold of is the Wellington, the, uh, the canal, the Welland Canal. Uh, the first Wellington, well, Welland Canal was starting to be built in the 1820s. And to do, to make this work, they, uh, the company was allowed to dam part of the Grand River. Mm -hmm. Young Galt, as the Indian superintendent uh, uh, brought this up with the council of the chiefs, they all agreed this is going to be a terrible thing for us. They damned that river. They're going to flood our crops on the lower part of the Grand. And so he asked the government, strongly recommended the government, they not allow Merritt and his uh, company to build this dam. Uh, and But they did. And sure enough, the crops were uh, destroyed for that year. And now I'm trying to find out because uh, his job as superintendent and ends and he becomes chief. And I can't find out what happened because none of the historians writing about this seem to know that this early Welland Canal is not where it is now. Right. Uh, they changed the location to connect up uh, Erie and Ontario Lakes. Uh, and I'm trying to figure out just what was going on. But he was strongly opposed to it and told the government. The government didn't listen, and sure enough, uh, the, their crops were destroyed. Whether the, the government then compensated the indigenous for it or not uh, is not clear. The records don't seem mm -hmm. to be clear. Mm -hmm. But Catherine, Catherine, his mother, went back to, to uh, Brant's town as they called it then, uh, and uh, uh, preferred the indigenous way of living and, and, and dressing and so on to the European. So, but John stayed at the house and his sister did too. But I can't find a picture of her. There's no portrait that I can find. And I can't find anything else in the records about her. So, uh, she's uh, remains a and uh, 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 question mark, and the reason she's important is that in the uh, Iroquoian tradition, uh, the uh, succession of leaders is determined matrilineally. Uh, the women, uh, the uh, women have some of the women uh, by inheritance have the right to name the leader. Mm. And she had the right, Catherine had the right to name the next leader, uh, which she did. So she named her young son, uh, even though I'm not sure how close they were. There's mm. no evidence of any correspondence between the two. So I'm, I'm hoping somebody knows some oral history uh, and is willing to uh, uh, help me look into that side of it. But uh, it's interesting. Uh, so it's a, it's, this is a rabbit hole I, I don't <laughs> want to spend a lot of time on, but uh, because I've got to finish this larger gold work. And uh, but but golf has been misinterpreted, uh, and that's why I'm I'm, I'm uh, emphasizing this. I'm curious before we wrap up, 
how you landed on John Galt as a person to study in his of all the people in history to study what made John Galt your guy? Well, uh, I discovered when I, I moved, well, if I, uh, I did my PhD at Alberta uh, and uh, Edmonton, and then my first job was at Laurentian in Sudbury. Uh, and uh, I uh, had, uh, was writing my dissertation on a Western American town, Cheyenne, Wyoming, uh, which was part of what historians uh, then started calling the urban frontier, this mm. idea of uh, putting towns in and then developing them. Uh, and Cheyenne turned out to be such a place. And so, and then when I moved to uh, to Sunbury, uh, I discovered that to a certain extent, uh, this is the kind of thing that uh, uh, mining companies were also doing. Uh, there was no other general settlement. They they built these new model towns and so on. Uh, and uh, so I became interested in this whole idea of uh, internationally of empires expanding through colonial towns. And it was particularly true in South America as well. It was by the Spanish. The Spanish were following the Roman example and the Romans were great at this. The Greeks too. Uh, and... Uh, so uh, anybody with a classical education knows how how uh, the urban was such an important part of those early classical civilizations. And so when I moved to Guelph, uh, I had never heard of John Galt uh, and uh, was uh, working on Canadian, starting to work on Canadian urban history and pioneering, actually teaching courses in it, really the first in Canada. Uh, and... Uh, uh, began to realize in what I read and heard locally, this guy John Galt was actually quite an interesting character. So I started getting into it. But I realized to begin with that uh, this involved this uh, a tremendous effort to try and master the British political system as well as the Canadian in order to understand anything about this. And so I, I wrote articles in the 80, 1980s about the planning of Guelph uh, by, by reading some sources. But then I went into, when, once I got into the really important sources in, in Toronto, for example, uh, I began to realize how the general stuff I was reading, uh, while it was sometimes okay, uh, was really, I didn't understand how this was part of a, a universal pro prospect. And so, this is not just local history, and this is connecting the local to something that's universal. And uh, so that, that fascinated me. And uh, that's uh, that's a theme I always pushed with, with students. And I had a lot of graduate students, uh, uh, 10 PhD students, and I don't know how many master's students did dissertations under me. And uh, my concern with them was always deal with something local and put it into the larger context. Uh, and the relationship between these two things is what distinguishes real history from just local history, because sometimes local historians don't know anything about anything outside their own community. Right. So uh, this is why I, I've become fascinated with that theme and pushed that notion with my graduate students. Well, I think it's fascinating that through, through your research, we, we, uh, we kind of see that 
it, when it comes to history, again, what what goes around comes around. So uh, I think uh, John Galt is uh, certainly an interesting subject to to reevaluate and uh, recontextualize as we're reevaluating and recontextualizing a lot of history. But uh, I want to let you get back to your book because uh, I want I want to make sure you get that that finished. But uh, Gil Stelter, thank you so much for your time today. Well, I enjoyed this. Thank you very much. Huh? And once again, that was Gil Stelter. Learning more about John Galt is relatively easy, but if you want to follow up on any particular points in the previous discussion, you can consult Galt's written works, which includes The Apostate or Atlantis Destroyed. You can buy that in paperback through Vocamus Press at vocamus.net, V-O-C-A-M-U-S dot net. You can also watch Stelter's presentation to the Guelph Historical Society on Roger's YouTube channel, and you can find a direct link to that in the show notes for this episode. And that is it for this edition of the Guelph Politicast. The music for the Guelph Politicast comes from KPM Classics and Sid Dale. The Guelph Politicast is usually recorded at CFRU, Guelph Campus and Community Radio, and to learn more about CFRU, go to CFRU.ca. You can download the Guelph Politicast every Wednesday from Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. And when you subscribe to the Guelph Politicast channel, you'll get an episode of Open Sources Guelph on Mondays and an episode of End Credits on Fridays. You can follow Guelph Politico on social media at Guelph Politico on Twitter and at Politico Guelph on Facebook. You can follow me at Adam A. Donaldson on Twitter and Instagram or send me an email at adamadonaldson at gmail.com. And if you'd like to help financially support the work of Guelph Politico, you can find all that information at guelphpolitico.ca slash donate. And finally, for all the latest local political news, check out guelphpolitico.ca, where we will have a new episode of the Guelph Politicast for you next week. And until then, we'll see you next time.